Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in central London, the United Kingdom. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Christian Bosch. He is the author of a, a fantastic new book called Connect the Dots. So Dr. Bush, Dr. Christian Bush is an internationally known expert in the area of innovation, purpose-driven leadership, and serendipity. He's the director of the CGA Global Economy Program at New York University and also teaches at the London School of Economics, a co-founder of Leaders on Purpose and the Sandbox Networks, and a former director of LSE's Innovation Lab. He's worked with senior executives and governments around the world. He's a member of the World Economic Forum's Expert Forum, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and on the Thinker's 50 radar list of 30 thinkers most likely to shape the future. His work has featured has been featured by outlets such as Strategic Management Journal, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, The Guardian, and the BBC. So, uh, Christian, many, wel- uh, many, 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 many thanks for joining us, and welcome to um, this podcast. Um, so, your book is, it seems to me, is basically about uh, some very important ideas. One is that chance plays a bigger role in our lives than we like to accept. Surely many people are going to be scared by that idea. And are there many powerful forces at work in the world to stifle the idea that chance is actually really important? People like to personalise their success. The fund manager likes to say, the reason I chose all the great stocks that I did for the last year or so is because I'm a genius at this kind of thing. Um, People are not likely to want to point to the role that chance may have played in their success. And even in the academic world, like the social sciences that are trying to explain phenomena like crime or inflation, social scientists are not likely to want to say actually a large part of it is down to chance. It's not really explainable. They're going to want to point to variables to say this variable causes inflation or that variable causes crime. So aren't there many powerful forces at work trying to hide from us the idea that you're trying to put forward that chance is actually really much more important than we realise? Over to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Rush. That's a, a great question. And, you know, I, I grew up in Germany and we love planning. You know, you go through the educational system and everyone tells you, plan your life and, you know, have your strategy. And then real life happens and you're like, oh, my God, this is anxiety enhancing here uh, to have all these unexpected things happen. And I think, you know, the COVID time probably has been one of those where, you know, not that many people saw it coming. And it's really that idea, right, that usually I think people either have an illusion of control that they say, I I truly believe that I can control a lot of things. And then the unexpected happens and we're like, oh my God, this this came really out of the blue now. And and, um, what do we do now? Or we might have, and I think that's what happens a lot, especially also with executives, uh, that they essentially want to somehow portray kind of authority and that they know things and that they, you know, can can pull it all off, uh, even though a lot of them are are just winging it. And, And I think that's the kind of purpose of this work is to say, you know what, instead of us all lying to each other that our CV is a straight line and we went from A to B to C and, you know, the, the CEO saying I had this plan and then I did exactly do this thing, we could actually all be honest about that, you know, there are unexpected moments in life, not only in terms of how a lot of times we fall in love, but also how we have up to 50% of innovations emerge, how we, you know, have a lot of kind of interesting things in life happen. And so the, the core of this work is really to say, instead of pretending that this is not there and airbrush it out of history, why not actually develop a mindset that allows us to make the best of the unexpected and then develop a, a vocabulary that actually makes it more active? So instead of just saying, this just happened to me 
and then I got lucky. No, a lot of people actually who got really lucky work very hard for being lucky. They develop the mindset that allows them to make the best out of chance moments. And that's what a lot of this work is about. So it's about the idea that chance is a lot more important than people realize. Then we transition to another idea that chance perhaps isn't just chance, that we can do something about it. We can make chance work for us. We can roll the dice and roll it often enough so the correct numbers are more likely to come up. So you're not saying that we can control chance perfectly, but you are saying there are things we can do at a practical level, surprisingly practical, that can turn chance to our favor. What's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, it's really those two things. One, we can make accidents more meaningful. We can do something with chance, right? And I'll, I'll give you an example in one second. Or we can create more of those meaningful accidents. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that too. So in terms of the kind of making accidents more meaningful, think about you know one of the quintessential examples in, in history where a couple of decades ago, researchers were giving people medication against angina, the disease, and then you know, they realized, oh my God, there's some kind of movement happening in male participants' trousers. And, you know, what would we usually do when something unexpected like this happens? We'll probably say, oh my God, that's embarrassing. That's, that's like, let's try to get rid of this side effect that, that, that kind of, you know, ha- makes that movement happen. Those researchers did the opposite. They said, you know what, that's unexpected, but there's probably a lot of men in the world who might have a problem in that department. So why don't we develop a medication around this? And this is how Viagra unexpectedly emerged as one of the major medications. And that's how up to 50% of inventions uh, tend to emerge. And so that's really kind of you have an unexpected moment, but then you try to imbue meaning in it. You try to say, is there something in this moment, in this crisis, that is an inflection point for something? And I think that's probably a lot of uh, also what we'll, what we'll dive in later on. In terms of creating more meaningful accidents, we'll probably dive into this, but I'm a huge fan of, of the hook strategy there that really allows us to create more positive accidents by thinking about how can I put meaningful things out there that other people can use to imbue meaning in them. So to give an example, there's an amazing entrepreneur in London, uh, Ollie Barrett. And if you would ask him this dreaded, what do you do question that we get at every conference, every dinner we go to where, where people don't know us yet, they would say, what do you do? And he wouldn't just say, I'm a technology entrepreneur. He would say something like, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently read into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential points where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister is teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. Oh my God, such a coincidence. We're hosting piano sessions. You should stop by. The point is the more we can seed those potential dots, the more we can cast those hooks, the more people can connect those in the most unexpected of moments. So part of this is about the way of looking at the world, changing the way we look at the world and looking at the world in a different way. So the Sildenafil or Viagra story is a very interesting one. I'm going to tell you that I've got a bit of a take on that story, um, which actually amplifies the point you're making. And now this story may be apocryphal. It may or may not be true. But I, I did talk to some of the people at the company, the drug company, a long time ago, because they make psychiatric drugs as well, who are on the inside of the story of the Sildenafil and Viagra. And the story goes that the drug, first of all, as you say, was meant to be for heart disease, or for a kind of heart disease or angina. Now, at the end of the drug trial, when the people who did the drug trial were asking the participants to give the leftover drugs that hadn't been used back, they discovered a strange thing, which is that people didn't seem to want to give the drugs back, which is very, very <laughs> unusual. 
right? And here's a bit that amplifies your point. Instead of just sort of, you know, walking away from that, the drug researchers wondered why are these people reluctant to give the drug back? And because they're talking about sex, which is a slightly embarrassing subject that people may not want to admit, well, actually, our sex lives took off. And that's why we don't want to give the drug back. <laughs> the, the, the researchers had to sort of burrow into the issue a little bit and create the conditions whereby the participants confessed. So there was a there was a, th- a thing that you talk about in your book, which is kind of looking out in the world and being curious. And um, part of your connecting the dots is they could have just walked away, but actually they burrowed into this thing, this little innocuous thing. Again, part of the serendipity point you're making is see within the innocuous or or things that look trivial, there could be deeper stuff within that. So what turned into a multi-billion pound drug started with an innocuous incident, which is why are these people not giving the drugs back? Um, so could you say a bit about that, the notion that what you're arguing is let's look at the world in a different way and the seemingly trivial could become really important? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point because a lot of times we miss the positively unexpected because we don't believe it's there. And so that's not a kind of, you know, I don't know, you just manifest things and then they come to you type thing. That's really about, you know, science essentially saying, look, if you expect something to be there, you tend to look more for it. So, you know, if you just, you know, got your driver's license and you know you want to buy a car, you see all these different interesting new cars now out there, you didn't look for them before and now you kind of might recognize them everywhere. And so it's this kind of thing where um, there's a lot of experiments. One of my favorites actually is is one that was kind of like half-jokingly done, but but I think it, 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 it brings the point home, which is they took people who self-identify as very lucky and people who self-identify as very unlucky. So the lucky people would be people who say, good things tend to happen to me and, and so on. And the unlucky people would say, oh, bad things tend to happen to me. I'm always in accidents and, and so on. And so they pick one of each and say, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, grab a coffee, sit down, then we'll have our interview. Now, what they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras along the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so money in front of the coffee shop. And inside the coffee shop, there's this one empty seat next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shops, orders a coffee, sits next to the businessman, they exchange business cards, potentially an opportunity coming out of it, we don't know that part. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, ignores the businessman, that's it. Now at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made a new friend, and you know, potentially that opportunity. Now, the unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And, you know, we'll probably talk more about the second, the kind of uh, part about, you know, talking with the person where there might be an aspect of extroversion. But, you know, for closet introverts like myself, there's a lot of hope that actually the positively unexpected comes from quiet, from calm sources. It comes from looking on the street. I find surprisingly much money in the street. Unfortunately, mostly pennies. So it doesn't really help, uh, you know, make me uh, improve my lifestyle. But, um, it's really once you expect it to be there, you tend to, to see it more. And that's really, a lot of this work is about saying, we can frame ourselves a little bit towards saying, once I look out for positive moments like this, they tend to happen more often because I expect them. 
So this is also a different way of being in the world, isn't it? There's a sense in which the person who is most likely to create the conditions and look at the world in the way you are advocating, whereby they'll see opportunities, see the world as a place of opportunity. In other words, they're in the world in a more positive sense. Um, whereas closed off people, people who aren't open to possibility and don't perform the actions or see the world in the right way, have already made a prior decision that the world is a, a, a closed place, negative things are likely to happen, they tend to withdraw from the world. So this is a whole kind of like being in the world in a different way, because you are positive about the fact the world may represent opportunities, and you have to be out there looking for them, and 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 be in the world as as a place that offers the possibility of opportunity. Could you say something about that? Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's really at the core of, of when thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of smiling when someone says, oh, I went to this boring dinner or I had this boring conversation. Then I always feel, look, that's on you. That's on you because everyone has something interesting. Like, you know, even the if we would have a, a scale, a continuum of the most boring to the most exciting person you could be with, the most boring person, you know, might, I, I don't want to put any cliches out there, so I won't use an example, but the most boring person um, might, you know, be the kind of person who doesn't have a lot of stories to tell. But, you know, they might have had a sister who went through the cancer treatment, and so they have something to share. They might have lost a dear one and 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 share how they cope with it. There's There's always something there that it's more on us to ask questions that actually allow them to somehow figure out what could be common denominators with what we're interested in. Give you an example. Uh, imagine you're going to, um, to, you know, Italy, you go to the coast and you have a nice holiday and, and you go and, and you bump into that person and you find, oh, they, they, they might be interesting. Y you know, if you just ask them, what do you do? They might say, well, I'm a fisherwoman, I'm a fisherman. Um, and you might think, okay, well, we probably won't have a lot in common. Because if you ask them, hey, what do you, you know, what is it that you enjoy about this? Like, what, it, what, why are you doing it? What is it, you know, something that in a way allows you to understand a little bit more about who they are, they might tell you, well, I love being on the sea because it's the endlessness of, of, of life that it represents for me or whatever it is. And you might be like, oh my God, that's why I love, you know, psychotherapy. It's the endlessness of, of, of potentiality of, of being, right? So it's kind of, there's all these different potential overlaps we only understand once we give the other person the benefit of the doubt that they might have something interesting to say and we don't discount that. And that's the same with everything else, right? If we look at a former drug dealer and we just see a former drug dealer, they will always be the former drug dealer. But if we look at them and say, wow, this person will have amazing social capital, this person will be very resourceful, if we can turn them into a teacher, they can turn a whole community around. And so then you kind of see that potentiality in the person you look at an old garage, you see a potential training center. And that's kind of the interesting thing that comes out of our research, especially also, uh, I do a lot of work in, in context of extreme poverty, uh, you know, especially in, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And what's fascinating there is once people reframe in particular contexts, the idea of, okay, resource constraint here, potentiality here, it's beautiful how much potentiality emerges, especially in resource constraints. And I think there's a lot we can learn from, from those contexts. So one of the reasons I'm really interested in your book is I think it has a lot of very important things to say about mental health and psychiatry and psychology, in particular psychiatric treatment. I know you didn't necessarily write the book with that intention in mind. But, um, for example, um, most people's lives, they wake up at a certain time, very predictably, they have the same breakfast, they take the same route to work, they have the same conversations with people at work, and then they wonder why they're depressed. Um, whereas if you take, for example, 
a different route to work every time you go to work. You're opening up your, yourself to the possibility of different things happening and making your life more interesting. So isn't there an interesting tension between the fact that people tend to stick to certain routines and then wonder why life really isn't working for them? There's a safety in doing the same thing the same way again and again, but it tends to land people in trouble and leads to poor mental health because life becomes... Um, depressing and closed off as a result. So isn't there a tension between the pursuit of safety and sameness and at the same time we want our lives to be different and more interesting? What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting because I'm a big fan of controlled risk in the sense that you want to have habits, you want to have things in your life that anchor you, right? You want to have things that make sure that you stay sane, that you have your routines that do you well, right? Being at meditation, you name it. That's kind of like you do that every day. You do it at the same time and, and that really helps you. In my case, I do a lot when I'm, you know, writing. Like I have my one or two hours at, at peak energy moments where every day I'm writing and, and that's non-negotiable and that's a routine that helps me to actually get things done, to grow with that work and so on. And then I think there are routines that really hold us back, right? Because we just do them because it's just what we are used to do. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of really writing down what are the things I do daily and one of those things are the ones that help me grow or that help me anchor or that are essentially quote unquote positive. And then what are those routines that just drag me down, right? Is it the kind of we have a team meeting every day with the same five people for an hour? Could that be reduced to 20 minutes or could there be two less of those meetings? And instead of that meeting, could there be another type of thing that could be done to your point? Um, and I'm a big fan, actually, of really rethinking then those kind of things. And it's small things, right? To your point, like taking the one different street to work, looking into the bookstore and, and seeing, oh, my God, like there's this this book like that could be a podcast and, and things like that, where you just start seeing things once you put yourself out of that functional fixedness of these are exactly the things I'm used to. And this is exactly what I'm doing. And, and this is how it's supposed to do. And, and I, you know, I work a lot with students. And one of the things we try to figure out is, how do you get away from having a, a clear idea of how everything is supposed to be, right? I am supposed to work as a banker for five years on, and only then I set up my NGO because that is the trajectory everyone else around goes to me. Uh, goes versus stepping back and saying, what is the bigger picture here? What, what gives you meaning in your life? What is it that, that could help you to achieve this meaning now? And if some of these routines help you do that, perfect. If not, what could be other ones that could help you more? The other reason I'm very interested in your ideas in the book is I think it again goes to the heart of another very important aspect of psychiatric treatment, which is the notion that most people think when they're depressed or low, they go to a therapist and they're going to have a conversation. It's the conversation that's going to get them better. Whereas the modern vogue in psychiatry is for this thing called cognitive behavioral therapy, the emphasis on the B, the behavior, which means basically people are going to have to go out and perform actions. So let's take an example, and I, it's a real example. I'm going to disguise details to protect confidentiality, but social phobia or social anxiety is a very common problem. People are anxious about being evaluated negatively by other people, so then they don't go out. They're, they're worried about being found boring, and therefore they don't go out and engage, and they end up being isolated and lonely. Um, and you could have a conversation of the treatment, or you could encourage people to be on dating apps and go out and meet people. In other words, perform an action. Right. So I had a patient once who got very low and, and was very inhibited and had become very socially anxious. So I explained they had to go out and perform actions. 
Um, and those could be small actions like trying to engage in a conversation with the person who serves you coffee at your local uh, coffee bar. Now, it turned out he used to play the guitar at open mic nights and he was quite a successful folk guitarist as a hobby. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm afraid part of your treatment is going to have to be you have to go back to the open mic night. I know you haven't done it for many years because you've become a bit low, but the treatment is you have to go, to go back and do that. Okay, very bravely and heroically, he agreed to go back. So he goes to the open mic night. It's at a local pub. People are playing the guitar or other instruments or singing a song or there's a band or being doing a bit of stand up comedy. As the time gets closer and closer for him to perform, he's getting more and more anxious because this is kind of like top of the hierarchy of anxiety, social anxiety to go and do a public performance. So he very bravely agreed to do it. He really began to regret agreeing. He put his name down so he couldn't back out. Right. And now comes the moment he has to go up on stage and play his little song. And he is just terrified and upset that he agreed to this harebrained scheme of Dr. Passords. He walks up to the microphone and freezes and can't think of anything to say. So he says the first thing that comes to his mind. He says, my psychiatrist told me I had to do this as part of my treatment. The audience laughed because they thought it was a joke, right? <laughs> it was actually true. <laughs> the audience didn't realize that. They laughed. He relaxed because he discovered he was actually quite funny. He didn't realize he was funny. Okay. And then he played the song and it all went fine. Okay. So I send people out to perform actions like this and I'm fully aware it could have gone really badly wrong. You know, he could have, he could have told that joke not realising it was a joke. The audience could have just stared at him in stony silence and he could have come back saying, listen, it was a complete disaster. But there's something really interesting about the idea that at the heart of getting better mentally in terms of mental health is to go and perform an action and engage with the risk. And what I find over and over again is, yes, sometimes some bad things happen, but even then it's still always growth experiences. Now, what changed my mind about this from your book is I now realize what it, what it is that makes it a growth experience is actually the engagement with the unexpected. When you go and perform an action, anything could happen. And quite often, it doesn't quite work out as planned, as in my little story I just told, which is, by the way, a true story. But there's something about growth that, that, that comes with engagement with action, which then comes back to the engagement with chance, which sitting around just doing psychotherapy by having a conversation can never be as powerful. Again, what are your thoughts about that? That's such a great example and, and such a great way of framing it because at the end of the day, to your point, every moment can be a growth experience or every moment can be something that does or does not work, right? And I think once we reframe every moment to a potential growth experience, then we realize that a lot of times even the things, even if that had gone wrong, maybe becomes the inflection point for something different. Maybe that person realizes, oh my God, there's something I enjoy even more doing, which is after the event XYZ happens and unexpectedly I realized I'm, you know, meant for XYZ other thing. The point here is I think it's it's really interesting to think about, um, you know, when we reflect on our lives and, and I'm a big fan of doing a serendipity journal where you write down what are things in my life that happened where I had unexpected positive things happen, but also what are things in my life where the unexpected could have been positive, but it didn't happen because something held me back, right? Fear of rejection, imposter syndrome, you name it. We probably all had that moment where we sit in a meeting, have this unexpected idea, but don't bring it up because we don't feel ready, don't feel worthy, you name it. And then really reflect on what's the pattern behind this. And to your point, it might be social anxiety, it might be other types of, of anxieties or, or, or else. And I think what's interesting there is that when you really then work on that underlying, and I think that's what some of your great work is around, um, then actually you realize 
a lot of times the thing that we thought would be the worst thing might not be the worst thing, right? So to give an example, in my case, I used to have a fear of regret, uh, sorry, a fear of uh, rejection. And so, uh, you know, I would be really, really scared of this moment of when you go up to someone, being a speaker at a conference or a potential love interest or whatever it is, and, and then that kind of rejection that really stings, right? And so I would be, I would be um, shy about it, but I would force myself to do it, um, even, even if it didn't, didn't feel well. But I always thought, well, that really stings. But then actually what really helped me was reframing it away from saying the worst thing that can happen is the rejection, that's the immediate sting, to no, the worst thing is the nagging feeling of not having talked with the person, walking outside and thinking, ah, what could have happened had I spoken with the person? That feeling of regret, you know, that sits, that sits much longer with you because you, you're regretful about it. And so it's really kind of this, uh, to your point, I'm a big fan of both the question of how do we reframe away from X was that thing doesn't work, it didn't work or whatever to, well, but maybe it was the inflection point to something bigger, right? So breaking up with a person a lot of times might uh, make you ready for, for the real love of your life. But also then to your point, like small action steps rather than thinking, oh my God, I have to change everything and I have to be kind of perfect the next day already. It's really about saying, no, how do I do small things that, that help me do it? And, and one thing a friend of mine does, I would not necessarily endorse it because I think there's a lot of kind of other implications with it. But I always loved when he, when he told me about it, which is he also had a fear of rejection. And so what he would do is he would go into coffee shops that he knew he would never go back to. And he would ask for a free coffee. He would just go inside and say, could I have a free coffee, please? And, and you know, it's that kind of feeling where you know you will most likely be rejected. Funny enough, though, a lot of people just gave him the free coffee because they thought there was a hidden camera somewhere or something like that. But actually, um, a lot of times you get rejected. But to your point, the more you do that, the more you realize, oh, it's get, it gets better and better and better. And it's not as kind of tough as you, you think it might be. So we've been talking about individuals engaging with chance and engaging with actions they could perform. But let's talk about a large part of your book is about companies and organizations and the notion that there needs to be a cultural change within an organization so that it embraces chance a bit more and embraces serendipity. So this is a big problem, isn't it? Because there's something now that happens when you get a group of people together. There are many social forces at work which kind of discourage people from taking chances. And I think this is one of the really interesting areas in your book, where you're trying to suggest that companies and organizations and even countries and cultures need to change their culture and and therefore um, embrace uh, the notion of chance and serendipity a bit more. Could you say something about that? Yeah. And I, I probably, you know, two two things that came that, that come to mind. One is really the, the question of psychological safety, right? So how do I in a given context, feel safe that I can bring up a, an idea that I don't get shot down and, and things like that. And so there I'm a big fan of what, what um, you know, people within Pixar, for example, used to do, which is whenever they open a meeting, they would be like, well, at the, at the beginning, all ideas are bad, start. And so this idea that you, you give people the license that they don't have to be perfect, they don't have to be coming up with the most mature of ideas, but they can just kind of put stuff out there and then iterate around it. And so I'm a big fan of thinking about kind of the psychological safety piece. Um, there's a lot of practices like the project funeral, for example, where essentially the idea is that things that didn't work, projects or ideas that didn't work, get, get laid to rest. And then the person who's responsible for them, instead of trying to hide them and never talking about them, which you know limits learning and, and limits the potential serendipity, they lay them to rest and reflect on what they learned from that process. 
And so a lot of times what happens is they lay it to rest and then someone might be like, oh my God, have you considered that this could work in another context? And then, uh, you know, in, in this one example, just as a side note, um, is, is one of my favorites where um, you, uh, essentially there was this window glass, right? And so uh, the idea was that it was an amazing technology that wouldn't make the light reflect. Um, and the project manager though realized, okay, that the market is just not big enough to, to sell enough um, of, of those window glasses. So they laid it to rest in front of people from other divisions and they said, look, we learned next time we, we have to understand the market better. Now, someone in the audience goes like, hey, 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 have you considered what this could mean for solar? Like the technology that you have seems to absorb so much energy that in a solar context, this could be amazing. And that's how, quote unquote, coincidentally, part of their solar division emerged. And you see those kind of serendipitous moments emerge when you give people the license to put out the things also uh, that might have gone wrong um, and, and see that as experimentation. And I think the second piece is really around what are the practices within a company that are simple? Like it's not about changing everything at once, but it's really about saying, are there small things? Like in the weekly meeting, do I ask people, what surprised you last week? And then they might tell you about things where you might be like, wow, actually that might be a new opportunity. Uh, to give you an example there, it's the, the potato washing machine. Uh, and, and the potato washing machine, um, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, a company in China, they produce uh, washing machines, refrigerators, and they received calls from farmers. And the farmers told them, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. And so, uh, you know, they asked them, well, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. And so what would we usually do? We'll probably tell them, well, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. Like it's, it's not made for that. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China who might have, you know, that problem. So why don't we build in the dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? That's how unexpectedly the potato washing machine emerged. If you now had a process within the company that would ask people, was there something surprising last week? Someone might say, well, I was surprised that our customers use, you know, our washing machines differently. And so again, it's giving people the license to bring in these ideas, but then more importantly, also to invest into them. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit um, again, which is some of the ideas in the book, about the notion that there's, there's chain, there's chains of chance events. So I'm going to give you another personal example from my life. Um, I play a lot of tennis. I'm quite competitive. I enjoy uh, playing tennis. My tennis partners will often say I'm too competitive. Um, uh, but one um, afternoon, the weather was was a bit ropey, and I was debating whether to go and play tennis at the local club that I play often at. The weather was wasn't looking great. Um, the options were to go and play tennis or stay indoors and read a book. Okay. I decided to go and play. So chance event number one, I'm gambling on the weather and I went up, I went up to play. But obviously I'm going to go out in the world and an action is going to be performed and there's more opportunity for chance to occur than if I stay at home and read a book. Um, it just so happened someone I hadn't played with before, we're playing mixed doubles, was playing chance event number two. So this is, I wouldn't have met this person if I hadn't gone out because this person doesn't turn up regularly. They, they just happened to be there on that particular afternoon. Chance event number three is they agree to stay up and have coffee on the terrace afterwards. Often people go home straight away. They don't hang around. But on this occasion, all four players hung around for a cup of tea afterwards. Chance event number are we at number four or number five? I can't remember. Is this person I played with, I hadn't played with, had invited a friend to come and have coffee on the terrace at the club. And this person turned up. And they looked in a great mood. And I said, chance event number six now. I said, how come you're in such a great mood? And they said, I just had an amazing round of golf. And I said, how come it's cheered you up? And they said, I'm normally terrible at golf. But this new coach I've got is really coming good. I've really, for the very first time, had a glimmer of the idea I could be really good. And I said, 
what's the name of the coach? I need a good golf coach because I've been playing very well for years. And see this chain of chance events led me to a new golf coach who I have been actually having golf with and who has improved my game. I would never have encountered that golf coach if it wasn't for this chain of chance events. But at every step of the way, there are various things going on that lead on to the next chance event in terms of openness to the world and being willing to try things that may not end well. I went out to play tennis, it could have rained, it may not have ended well, etc, etc, etc. Any thoughts or reaction uh, to the story? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it shows how both the kind of randomness of life, right? Like how many potential, like how many potential things could have happened, right? Like there could have been so many different things. But I think also, Rush, this comes to a point we talked about earlier, which is that life is full of infinite possibility. And a lot of times it could have happened, but it didn't, right? So, so putting it this way, right? So that, that person you had in the end might have been the person who unexpectedly tells you about golf, or they might have been the person who unexpectedly tells you about a billionaire client who needs a psychiatrist, and then this person becomes your major client, right? So, so, so there's, there's, a, there's infinite possibility in how all these potential events and, 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 and incidences could have played out. And that's why I'm so fascinated about that. I think we we always kind of focus a lot on particular stories, right? So, oh, in these stories, we had to have this right and this right and this right and this right, which is completely true, right? But then also a lot of times you could have met that person at a very different other event, unexpectedly so, or you could have met another person at that kind of goal, uh, tennis court and so on and so on and so on. And I think that's the, the fascinating thing, Rush, I think we talked about in terms of how do we see the unexpected as a potential ally? Because there's so many things there that could happen but a lot of times they don't, and so we don't assume they are there, but actually they are everywhere. And, you know, those of you who are interested in this, I, I highly recommend uh, checking out the birthday paradox, which is if you would think about what is the probability of two people in a room of 23 people to have the same birthday? I assume most people would say it's extremely low, right? They would say divide 365 days and, you know, 23 people, and, and you get to like an extremely low probability. But actually the probability is 50%. And, and then you do that with 70, 80, 90 people, and it's 99.999%. I usually do that in groups of 60 and more people, and you always have two, three, four birthday pairs. And it usually blows people's mind to, to see, oh, my God, this was what felt extremely unlikely. But actually, it is extremely likely because it's exponential. It's an exponential function to the power of, right? 23 people. Person number 23 has 22 people who could have the same birthday. 22 still has 21 people and, and so on. And so... The point is that's the same with life, that life is exponential in the sense that there's so many potential good things that could happen to someone like you who has varied interests, who is curious and, and, and interested in people. And so I'm always fascinated by this question of how do you exactly then both kind of, you know, put yourself into an environment that make it happen, but also, to be honest, how that a lot of times can lead to societal inequality, right? Because if you think about it that way, if you play in a, on a tennis court somewhere in an impoverished part of town, and you play there, and there are not those kind of people around who, who could afford to play golf, then actually, you know, you wouldn't have had that incidence versus in another part you, you, you would. And I think it's really the kind of interesting piece then to think about how can we also work on the policy side to, to relieve structural inequalities that we can all overcome, I think, in terms of, you know, a lot of the kind of discussions that are going on at the moment. And so when, when you know, thinking about um, your, your amazing chain of events, like those are the two things that come to mind. The one is really that someone like you 
it's very likely that you will have a lot of those events because it's so it's so probable that those events happen even as a chain. And then at the same time, thinking about what are the kind of communities we can build for everyone to have more of those potential moments because they are in contexts where it's, contexts where it's more likely that those can happen. So we're running out of time. We've had a fascinating conversation. Thanks um, for the interview. And um, just to remind listeners of the book, it's Connect the Dots by Dr. Christian Bush, and it's published um, uh, by Penguin. Um, But you're clearly a very positive guy. I can tell that from talking to you, (laughs) and you're relentlessly positive. Now, I need to ask you a tough question. Um, You you must encounter the fact that you're trying to get people to be more open to serendipity, right? But you must encounter the fact that... (laughs) Oftentimes, you're up against it a little bit, and people are a bit negative and gloomy and don't really um, run with the idea or don't get the idea, or they're just negative. When you So what keeps you so positive? Because you keep fighting on. You've written this wonderful book. Despite the fact, surely it is the case, you do experience a, a lot of negative reaction to these ideas. Or am I wrong when I say that? Well, you know, it's interesting because so I used to live in London for, for 10 years and, you know, it, I'm very nostalgic also speaking with you. You know, I, I, I uh, it's very much kind of still the, the, the home of my heart. And uh, I had a colleague there. And, you know, when kind of a couple of years ago, when I told him about the content and, and the ideas. And so he was like, Christian, you know, I love you. I love your ideas. But why do I need this? You know, I have my job. I have my family. Like, why would I need more serendipity in my life? And so we made a deal. We said, you know what? Go out there, ask a couple of different questions, you know, away from what do you do to what do you enjoy doing, or put a couple of hooks out there, engage with the person to your point uh, who gives you the coffee and, and just engage them a little bit. And then let's, let's talk again. He comes back after a couple of weeks and he's like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. And, and, and you know, that kind of stuck with me because I always presumed with this kind of book and with, with the related content my key quote-unquote target group would be people who, like us, right, who intuitively do a lot of this, and then you learn how to do more of it, and you get a vocabulary for it that, that allows you to justify towards other people. That it's not just passive, but it's actually you made that golf uh, uh, incidents happen because you had that kind of mindset that, that you have. And so it's, it's kind of interesting because I thought that would be the natural audience for this. What I've realized, though, is where I get the most joyful from nowadays is those people like my former uh, uh, colleague who, in a way, quote unquote, don't believe in it or who think they don't need it or who kind of have their you know, particular way of how they want to live life. And those are then the people where it has the biggest difference because once they start to try small things and they're like, oh, my God, this is actually quite joyful. Oh, my God, this is actually helping me you know, relieve anxiety. Oh, my God, this is X, Y, Z. They are the ones who become the most bought into it because they're like, oh, my God, this truly changed my life. And so, you know, I found that fascinating. Uh, This was a book written, you know, first for the kind of um, young professional or people who, you know, are in their careers. But then I had a lot of psychologists actually reach out and say, oh, my God, this is a way to decrease anxiety. This is a way to really work around, you know, people's fears and, and, and things. And it's those kind of things that I enjoy the most at the moment, the unexpected areas of application of this work where it seems to have the biggest impact, even though me not even be aware of it. That's also, by the way, Rush, why I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for that, because I feel you give amazing context to how it is being shaped in other areas where, you know, I love that social anxiety uh, example, for example. It's, it's those kind of areas, I think, where it really can have a difference. 
Okay, so we've been talking to uh, Dr. Christian Bosch, and the, the book is called Connect the Dots, uh, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Just one final cliffhanger I want to leave people on. At the end of the book, there's a fascinating calculating our serendipity score. And the first question is, I sometimes chat to strangers when queuing in public spaces, such as a supermarket or bank. I'll leave the listener to think about what is the correct answer to that question and where, where does it take you on the serendipity score? But there's this fascinating scale at the end of the book which calculates how likely you are to be open to serendipity and to have more serendipity in your life. So, uh, Christian, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating interview. Thank you so much, Brian.